Uh, our scripture today is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Our scripture reader is Don Hatfield. In honor of God's word, uh, let's, uh, let's stand together. Listen as I read. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so we uh, are taking three Sundays, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday, to uh, revisit, uh, explore, uh, kind of dig into a little bit of the vision uh, that we have, uh, that God has seemed to, to stir up here over uh, recent years. And um, we said it last week, and I'll say it again. It might be obvious uh, to you, but we are in a little bit of a transition as, as a church family. Uh, and that, that transition uh, is partly due to uh, the disruption of COVID um, and even some, some, uh, uh, some issues in our, in our ministry that existed before COVID. And then it's partly due to staff and staff changeover and um, and looking to fill some spots that are, that are open currently. And so it puts our whole church family in a little bit of a, you know, we've been experiencing some disruption, especially over these last uh, few months and the last couple years. Um, and right now, <clears throat> we have added uh, a couple to our team. Uh, we obviously uh, nationwide are still dealing with a, uh, pretty high COVID numbers, and our region has high COVID numbers. And so we're, we're hoping that in the months ahead, we are going to see those, those numbers drop uh, and as those numbers drop, we're uh, prayerfully uh, eager to see our team uh, here at Sojourn, our, our, our staff, grow and, uh, and gel together. And uh, every single week right now, uh, we are working to, to organize and to, and to plan uh, to serve you as a church family and to serve uh, the Traverse City uh, community. Uh, there's a bunch of things, I think, that, uh, that I'm, I'm excited about and I'm, I'm hopeful for. Um, and we'll be talking about those things uh, as they come together. Uh, but, you know, a basic way of, of talking about what, what, what we look forward to is like faithfully following Jesus, like faithfully following Jesus, faithfully following Jesus as a church family, trying to follow Jesus and help other people to follow him too. Uh, and so last week, uh, we opened to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that text that we read last week, we saw a pretty robust call from the Apostle Paul uh, to, this, to this church in, in, a, in a city in the first century, in the city of Corinth. And he writes this letter, and he, he basically says, I, I'm calling you to follow Jesus with your whole life. I want you to let the love of Christ control you. I want you to, I want you to tell other people about him. And he like, calls them to like, give their lives uh, to, to the mission of God, to let that form how they live. Um, but he started off with a phrase, and before he called them to that kind of a life, he said, knowing the fear of the Lord. And so last week, we spent our time trying to say, what does what that phrase, the fear of the Lord, mean? What, what is Paul pointing to? It seems like he's saying, if, you, if you've experienced this fear of the Lord, then the rest of this makes a lot of sense. And uh, last week, I, I tried to make the case that maybe a way to understand the fear of the Lord is a recognition of awe, that, that God is, is greater and grander than we naturally would think, uh, the Bible, the word the Bible uses often for that is, is this word glory, and the word glory means weighty, and so it seems like Paul is saying, if you've experienced the weightiness of God, the glory of God, the grandness of God, 
And uh, last week, the invitation was uh, to consider that as a personal encounter with God. Has God gone from just being an idea to being a reality? And a a way to evaluate it is, who moves who around? If if God's just an idea, then you move God around. You you make him fit what you want. You, you, You take what you want and leave what you want. But if God's become a reality, if you've experienced the weightiness of God, then, then now, now God is the one moving you around. God is the one reorienting you and reorienting your priorities in, in your life. And one of the ways that you could evaluate whether or not you've had a legitimate personal encounter with the God of heaven is who moves who around. It's a legitimate question. Have you had a personal encounter with God where you've seen his glory, where you've seen his goodness, and where it's changed you. We, we, we recognize that if that hasn't happened, uh, then in some ways we're, we're kind of frauds. You know, we're, we're running around pitching, pitching this idea of, of God as the center of our lives or trying to tell our neighbors to come to church with us when, it, when we haven't actually experienced the weightiness and the grandness of God. So it was uh, helpful in my mind for us to start with that uh, as we go through this little vision series, uh, a call, an invitation to a personal encounter with God. Uh, this week, you could maybe think of this as us taking one step out or one, one ring out. If we're talking internally, a personal encounter with God, one step out from that might be the question of, do we know where we live? Do, do we know what our context is? Do we, do we know where we live? Now, if someone asked you, where do you live? I mean, you could answer that. I could answer that by saying, you know, the, 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 the uh, Northwestern Hemisphere. Like, we could start there. Uh, you could say, I live in the United States. You could get more specific and say, I live in Michigan. You could get more specific and say, I live in Traverse City, Michigan. You could get more specific by telling them your street address. Uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of details that you could give if someone says, where do you live? But this morning, I want to ask that question or think about that question in a more figurative way rather than a literal way. I, I want us to try to consider our current cultural moment. And uh, I want to turn to John chapter 1. Uh, and let that uh, maybe invite us into some, some thoughts uh, on that question. In John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, uh, we see, uh, we kind of get introduced to Jesus. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with John chapter 1, uh, maybe you've read these words before, the whole, the whole chapter. Maybe you've read John's gospel. Maybe you've never heard of them. Maybe you've never even read, 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 uh, read the Bible before. But what, what, what happens in John chapter 1 is the, the first 18 verses, it, it, they are, uh, it's almost impossible to calculate how important the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are for the way that Christianity has understood who Jesus is. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1, I think you could make the case, are, are the most influential content for understanding, having a doctrine of Jesus, understanding who he is, Uh, what he did, why he did it. And as you read through those first 18 verses of this chapter, you find out that Jesus is God, that he is the eternal God. The the, the Christianity has a a doctrine called the Trinity, where we believe there's one God, three persons. And John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, uh, help us understand how that Trinity works, that Jesus is one of those persons of the Godhead, that he is eternal God, that he's true light. Those verses tell us that he came, uh, and he, he, what he did was he took on flesh, and he came to this earth, and he lived here. 
So this eternal God takes on a human body and comes and dwells among us. Those 18 verses tell us why he did it. He tells us that he did it because we did not, you know, we, we did not know him, but he came so that we could see him. It actually says no one has seen God except that Jesus showed up and put God in the flesh, gave us, gave us a, a tangible picture of who God is. And why did he do it? So that he could actually make us children of God, that he could provide the way for us to become children of God. That we, if we believe on his name, that he would make us children of God. If we were to trust him to do it, like he'll make us children of God. So incredible, those first 18 verses are, are incredible. Then, then you go through a little introduction to a guy named John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And, uh, and, and this was, a, he was related to Jesus, but he was a, a, a front runner. He was supposed to go out and uh, uh, prepare the way. He was go, supposed to go talk about Jesus and kind of prepare the people, prepare the, 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 the Jewish people for the fact that the Messiah was on his way. And so as John went about his work, uh, he ends up with some followers. And so John the Baptist has some disciples. He has some people that are sitting under his teaching, that are following him around. And as John chapter 1, the gospel chapter, as this unfolds, we, we see that John looks at his followers, verse 29, and he says, Jesus walks by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist looks at his followers and says, see that guy walking by? He's, he's the Lamb of God. Be, behold the Lamb of God. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus' baptism. Uh, you can read about Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 or Luke chapter 3. And just an incredible sequence of events when Jesus is baptized. And John the Baptist uh, refers to that here uh, in these, these verses where Jesus goes into the water and he is baptized, and when, he, when he's baptized, there's a, there's a voice from heaven, a dove comes down, the Spirit of God is talking, and he says, this, the, the, God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this powerful moment where you realize that Jesus has the smile of God. And John the Baptist says to his followers, that's him. <laughs> that's the one who has the smile of God. That's the one who God said, this is my Son, and I'm pleased with him. Well, after those verses, you come to our text, verses 35 through 39. And it says, on the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So very similar to verse 29. And John points to Jesus again with his followers with him. He says, That is uh, the Lamb of God. And the disciples, in verse 37, they heard him say it, and they went, they went after Jesus. And so John the Baptist has these two disciples, these two followers, these two apprentices, and he says that's the Lamb of God, and those two disciples leave John the Baptist, and they go with Jesus. And then you begin to realize that this is what John the Baptist wanted all along. John the Baptist was trying to point people to Jesus. He was the forerunner. He was the voice calling out, saying, get ready, the Messiah is on the way. And so as he's pointing out Jesus in verse 29 and then pointing out Jesus in verse uh, 30, uh, 35 and 36, and his disciples hear him and they change allegiances. They become disciples of Jesus. This is what John wanted. Th this is what John wanted them to do. 
And then you get to verse 38. These two disciples leave John the Baptist, and they go and follow Jesus. And in verse 38, Jesus turns around, and he sees that these two disciples are following him. And Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? They respond, and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So basically, can, like, can we be with you? Can, can, we, can we sit under you? Can we be with you? And Jesus' answer is, come and you'll see. So they follow him, apparently. And as you read the next couple verses, you find out that they, they follow Jesus, they spend the day with Jesus, and then look at their conclusion. After they spend this time with Jesus, they conclude, like, he, he is. He, he's the Messiah. And in verse 41, you see that one of those disciples leaves uh, after that time with Jesus, and he goes and gets his brother, and this, this disciple's name was Andrew, and he goes and gets his brother, who we know as Peter, and Andrew goes to Peter, and he says, guess what? We found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. And so Andrew uh, takes this news that John the Baptist had said to him, hey, that's the guy. Andrew goes and spends time with the guy, with Jesus, and then he's like, I need to tell other people about this. And he goes and he tells his brother Peter. And if you were to read the rest of the New Testament, you would find out that while Andrew does not have that big of a footprint in the story, uh, in the New Testament uh, uh, accounts that we have, Peter has a huge footprint. Uh, Peter becomes a, uh, one of the most influential people in the first century in regard to the spread of Christianity. And it's all because John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus. And then Andrew realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and he goes and gets his brother. So these first, two 40, these first 42 verses of John chapter 1, they, they kind of lay out this map. Who is Jesus? What he came to do? The desire to tell other people about him? And so we have this pretty powerful picture of the, the first days, of, uh, or the, the first phase of Jesus' earthly life. Now, a couple months ago, you know, maybe about a year ago, I, I ran into this, uh, this little uh, quote, a couple questions from a guy named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard was on faculty at USC in, in Southern California. Um, he was a philosopher, but he's, he's very well known for his commitment to spiritual formation. And he once wrote this, every church needs to be able to answer two questions. What is our plan for making disciples? And does our plan work? Uh, th these are uh, pretty important questions, and uh, I guess maybe it depends on your background or your current state of things, uh, but especially if your job is in ministry, if your job is, for example, to be a pastor of a local church, you can see why these two questions uh, might haunt you and uh, cause you to lose some sleep. Um, they are important questions. They're questions that should be asked. And, and I want to uh, present something to you. I want to suggest something to you. And, and that is <clears throat> that both of these questions should be under constant review. For, for a local church or for an individual Christian, like, they, these are questions that we should constantly be wrestling with. I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but I, I think that most people in this room would agree that question two should be constantly evaluated. Does the plan work? Does the plan work? But I want to suggest to you that both questions need to be constantly evaluated. What is the plan? <clears throat> How are we trying to make disciples in the world in which we live? Where we're at right now? 
So yes, does it work? That's a really important question. But what is the plan? Are are, are we recognizing, are are we thinking about the the fact that both of these questions matter? That that our journey with Jesus demands a level of of curiosity. That our journey with Jesus demands a level of of, of seeking. It it demands a a willingness to learn and, and to grow. Because the world is changing. Because you and I are changing. And in this, this idea of, of just pasting on something that was done before, or this is the way we've always done it. You know, maybe you've been around church long enough to know that that is a problem in churches. It's like the idea of like, well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, okay. But you've still got to answer question one. What's the plan? And you've got to answer question two is does our plan work? And as the world changes, maybe the plan needs to change. So, Our world is always changing. It has changed, and it's always changing. Um, You you know, I just mentioned this idea of John pointing to Jesus and saying he's the Lamb of God, this idea that that he's the the forerunner to tell everybody the Messiah is on his way. Do, Do you know how different Jesus the Messiah was from the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting? Dramatically different dramatically different. One of the reasons why the religious leaders had such a problem with Jesus was because Jesus was not the Messiah that they were trained to expect. It's not the Messiah they were taught to expect. They, they read the Old Testament, and there's some very good reasons why they made the conclusions they made, but is all they had category for, or their primary category, was a Messiah who was going to come and conquer, raise up an army, overthrow Israel's oppressors and put Israel back on top. That's what the people of Israel were expecting. But when Jesus came, Jesus never raised up an army. Not not an army like they were expecting. Jesus never got a bunch of swords and never made a run on the Roman authorities. Jesus never tried to overthrow the government. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. And to follow Jesus required a massive shift, a massive shift that a lot of people couldn't make. They, did, they, they, they missed Jesus. Jesus the Messiah was right in front of them, and they missed him. Maybe you've uh, thought about this before, but there's a, a Sunday that on, the, on the church calendar called Palm Sunday, and it's the Sunday before, uh, before we celebrate Easter. And on Palm Sunday is the Sunday that Jesus came into Jerusalem. And on that Sunday, it was uh, the, 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 uh, the, the time of Passover. And on that Sunday, throughout Israel, throughout Jerusalem, they would have been singing psalms, the psalms that are in your Bible. That was the songbook of Israel. And they would have been singing songs during the week of Passover that were calling out and longing for the coming of the Messiah. And they'd all be gathered singing these songs, longing for the Messiah as Jesus walked right, right into their city. And so many of them missed him as he walked right by because they had, a, they had a, an image in their mind. They had an idea in their mind of what they should expect. And it was so locked in that they missed the actual Messiah. You know, a friend of mine sent me a quote this week from a, a Greek uh, philosopher um, named Epictetus. And this is the quote. It is impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. 
And it's easy to look at the people of Israel and, and roll our eyes or, or kind of laugh at them or, you know, point and look, you know, look and point. But how true might that be of us? How true then might that be of, of, of our own church, of our own lives? How true is that of, you know, of, of our perspective on the world, of our perspective of our neighbor? You know, how curious are you about how your neighbor sees the world? How curious are you about how you see the world? You know, there's a, an author named David Foster Wallace. Uh, he, he's uh, no longer living, uh, but he, in his brief life, wrote some really powerful things that had a, a huge impact uh, in, in, in the culture and in the world. And uh, he was speaking uh, at a commencement for a college, and he used this little analogy. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And David Foster Wallace uses that analogy to put in front of this group of graduating seniors from this college uh, the, the question, do, do you actually recognize what you're swimming around in? If you're a fish that's lived your whole life in the water, wouldn't it be easy to miss the water? Wouldn't it be easy to just assume things? Have you thought about the water that you and I are swimming in in the year 2022? Now look, there is no way to tackle that in, in one sermon. Uh, that's, a, that's a big question with a lot of dynamics. But I do want to try to add, address one aspect of it. Uh, over the last few years, uh, a, a very real dynamic has, has come to dominate uh, our, our view, our current culture's view of the world. And it's been brewing for a really long time. Some, uh, some would say decades, others might say for centuries. But it has come into full view in our Western culture in, in recent years. And you could summarize it as a move from objective thinking to subjective thinking. Now, I've, I've, I've tried to address it occasionally in sermons along the way uh, because I think it's helpful to try to name it, to try to understand it. Uh, I'm in a journey of trying to understand it myself. Uh, there's a lot of scholars that have been engaging this conversation, uh, and they've been super helpful to me. What, one of those scholars, his name is Carl Truman. And I've uh, read Carl Truman and listened to Carl Truman over the last few years, but just a few weeks ago, I actually picked up his book on this subject. And the title of his book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, and and, and Carl, uh, Carl Truman uses different words for this, but, but he describes the shift this way. The objective view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. The subjective view, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So another way of saying that, and this is how we've said it here before, is it's a shift from the truth is out there to the truth is actually in here. And so the shift would be something like this. Maybe a few generations ago, the general uh, approach to life was there is, a, there is a truth that's out there. And, and my objective is to go find out what that truth is, to seek out that truth. 
And as I figure out that truth, as I seek out that truth, then I look inside and I, and I align myself with what this external truth is. The, the shift that's happened is now there's a general sense in which the truth is in here. It's subjective. And what I do is I go in here and I've got to find, in a sense, my own truth. And as I find my own truth, then I turn back to the world out there and I expect the world to align to me. Now, for some of us, that might not be a terrible journey. But can you imagine being a 13-year-old and being told that? That the way you navigate this world is go find your own truth? And then when you find your own truth, turn back to the outside world and expect the outside world to align with it? Now, uh, just a, a snapshot of this would be this. If, if you are confused by the gender conversation that's happening in our culture right now, I would encourage you that maybe this is the conversation that you need to get familiar with. The, the, the more you understand this shift, the more you'll understand why the gender conversation is happening the way it's happening. That is, I go in, I find my own truth, and then I turn back to the world and expect the world to align with what I've found. It's a significant change. But for that shift to happen, you know, there had to be a lot of elements at play, not just a philosopher that wrote one book or a couple philosophers that wrote a few books or people who found old philosophers and adjusted those ideas for our modern context. No, there had to be a lot of things. And Carl Truman gives some examples. One example would be farming. He says, think about farming. Farming used to be where you would take your seed and you would till the ground, you'd put your seed in the ground, and you, you, you were completely dependent upon uh, the weather, upon natural disasters, you, the, the cycles of the year. You needed that crop to grow, and you needed the weather to be right so that that crop grew the way it should grow. Now, think about what we can do with farming. You, you can go down to Meyer right now and get any fruit you want. It doesn't need to be in season. You can get avocados today if you want them. You, you, and farmers can grow crops year-round. They can get far more yield from an acre than they ever could before. We have, we have greenhouses. We have uh, irrigation. We have fertilizer. We have uh, pesticides. We, we have all kinds of things that have taken the limitations that farming used to experience and, it's, and, and, and farming has realized, oh, we, we're not limited by those things like we thought we were. Travel. Uh, think about travel. And, and uh, you know, there's, there, you, maybe some of you are familiar with some of the old missionary stories. But, like, one of the great ones is there's a missionary who went to Africa, and part of the way that he packed up his stuff was he packed his stuff in his coffin. It's like, I better take my coffin because I'm probably never coming back. Like, this is the limitations of travel. He got on a boat, and it took him months to get where he was going. And once he got there, he never expected to return. What, what, what about those limitations today? We can get all kinds of places quickly. But even if you can't physically get there, you can hop on your iPhone and FaceTime with your loved ones from any country in the world. Those limitations have been removed. They, they, aren't, they don't bound, bind us anymore. Uh, Carl Truman points to medicine, and he recognizes all the limitations that we used to experience as we grew older or as we had certain diseases. Those limitations have been removed by the development of, of science. All of these limitations have been overcome, 
And as those things happen, it begins to, to help cultivate this environment where the idea of external limitations are removable. They're changeable. We don't have to be hemmed in by those kinds of things. You know, people have waited and waited and waited for flying cars. But what do you think an airplane is? That's a flying car. We, like, we, we, we're not limited by gravity anymore. I mean, in, in figurative and literal ways, the sky is the limit. I read an article a couple years ago that was talking about Silicon Valley and how biotech, uh, like that's, the, that's the great next frontier. The investment money that was being put into biotech was, was significant, and it's, it's almost like this, this idea of biohacking or figuring out how to turn the human body into half body, half, half machine. You, you can see how the, the mentality would almost be like, hey, all of these other limitations have been stopped. Maybe the limitation of death can be stopped too. See, none of these things are that surprising if you're willing to look at the world from the subjective perspective. If you're willing to look at this and recognize that part of the journey for our society has been all of these limitations that we thought we used to have, they, they actually they aren't as solid as we thought. They aren't as restrictive as we thought. And so the conversation continues and it moves into more and more areas. Now, I want to be clear about something. I am not suggesting that the current way of seeing the world is all wrong and the former way of seeing the world was all right. That, that's, that's not the point that, that I am making. It's not a, an invitation to the good old days. Uh, there, there's, there's plenty of challenges that exist in a world that is only objective thinking. So this is not either or, right, wrong. It's an invitation to consider what's going on around us. What's the water that we're swimming in right now. And one of the reasons why I don't want you to make that conclusion that one of these is right and one of these is wrong is the gospel's own record of how Jesus interacted. And here, here's what I want to show you. Um, a few years ago, we walked through the gospel of Mark uh, as, as a church family. And I really, really enjoyed preaching through the gospel of Mark. And in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we have these, these words are the first recorded words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wow, that is a really, really stark comment. The kingdom of God's here. You better repent and believe in the gospel. That is a very objective statement that is Jesus saying there's no question marks in that statement that is it's a matter of fact the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel that's an objective statement Jesus comes preaching that and telling the people here is reality here is what is real here is what is happening in a sense the kingdom is coming the kingdom is here repent and believe the gospel, align your life to that truth. That's the truth out there. Now align your internal life to it, right? And I, if, if you've grown up in the church, that kind of thinking, that kind of talking is probably pretty familiar for good reason. It's how Jesus came into the world in, gospel chapter, uh, in Mark chapter one. But think about the text that we just read in John chapter one. In John's gospel, verse 38 
are Jesus's first words in John's gospel. So Mark starts off his gospel with the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. But look at how John starts off his gospel of Jesus. What are Jesus's first words in John's gospel? What do you want? Your version might say, what are you seeking? The, the, the Greek word for, for seeking can be translated want or desire. When, when Jesus sees these two people that have started to, to follow behind him, Jesus turns around to them and he approaches them extremely subjective. Jesus' first words to those followers are, have a question mark. He's asking them. He says, what do you want? What do you seek? What do you desire? In, in our language, maybe we would say, what, what, what do you love? What are you longing for? What do you want out of life? What, one of the things that you can be thankful for here is that Jesus cares about them as individual people. And we know from the rest of the Bible that Jesus cares about you as an individual person. So, so yes, there's objective truth. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, repent and believe the gospel. This is the good news that we want everyone to hear. But Jesus also has the tenderness to turn to you and say, what, what do you want? What are you seeking? What do you desire? You see, Jesus is doing both. Mark gives us the more objective view of the world. John gives us the more subjective view of the world. Uh, another example of this would be the way that Paul preaches. If you were to read through some of Paul's sermons, what you'll find out is that when Paul is with a largely Jewish audience, he is referencing the Old Testament all the time. He's always using Old Testament analogies or Old Testament illustrations or talking about Old Testament prophets. But when Paul is with a largely non-Jewish audience, he almost never references it, or at least not directly. He is more than glad to talk to these non-Jewish audiences from a perspective that they would understand. And Acts 17 is, is maybe the, the most classic example of that. He's crafting his approach based on who he's talking to. In one place, Paul actually says, to the Jews I became a Jew, and to the non-Jews I became a non-Jew. Like, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with who's in front of me. He's not denying that there's objective truth. But he's saying there's a sense in which having a subjective eye, having a recognition that there are human beings who have longings and wants and desires, that's valid too. Those are important questions too. See, I'm not suggesting that one of these ways of seeing the world is all wrong and the other one's all right. Here, here's a quote from Carl Truman. He says, Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond, respond appropriately to them. So there's this sense in which it's like, do you know what's going on in the year 2022? You know, when, when Paul preaches one of his sermons, he talks to the crowd about one of their writers. It's important that you know how your neighbor's experiencing the world. And honestly, the more you understand that, the more you realize you might be experiencing the world more like that than you think. Some of these very ideas might be true for you too. And that's, that's helpful. 
That's an invitation for you to actually hold up the mirror, for you to actually ask the question, how's the water? Instead of somehow assuming that the water's not true for you or that you're beyond the water or what is water. No, no, you're you're breathing this, this culture too. There is a need in the Traverse City region for followers of Jesus who are thinking about these things who are thinking about these things deeply and with intentionality, who are thinking about these things with, with, with rich gospel roots that are sunk deep, with, with joy that you can feel, with love that you can see, with a persistent sense of curiosity. You know, when we come to our culture and is all we've got is objective perspective, all we've got are truth claims, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle in regard to communicating with the people in our life that we have grown to know and love the message about Jesus. Knowing the gospel objectively opens more doors for you to share the gospel in subjective ways. So here, here's, here's what, uh, what I'm saying. I said it this morning, and it's not uncommon, that on a Sunday morning, we'll say something like, we call our Sunday services gospel representations, because on Sundays, what we want to do is hold up the gospel and look at the good news about Jesus together, get, gaze at it together, let, let, it, let it shine on us together. And what I'm, what I'm saying with this statement, knowing the gospel objectively opens more doors for you to share the gospel subjectively, is this. The, the more you get the tentacles, the, the, the roots of the gospel, the more they sink into your heart, the more free you are to sit with someone and to listen to their story and to actually wrestle with the journey that they've walked, to actually hear what the challenges are or what the joys are of their life and to see how it is that the gospel of Jesus can, can speak into that, how the gospel of Jesus has something to say about their experience of the world. There's a book that's on our book wall right now, and it's been on our book wall for years, and it's called Unbelievable Gospel. It's written by Jonathan Dotson. And in that book, what he does is he takes six different perspectives on the gospel. Same gospel, one gospel, but he takes six different perspectives, or what you might say six different doctrines that are associated with the gospel. And he says, as you hear people's stories, it is probable that one of those six is going to resonate more with that person's experience. One of those six is going to resonate more with their journey that they've been on. And if God opens the door for your conversation with them to actually turn to the subject of Jesus, you have on-ramps into their, into their story, into their life, that actually makes sense for them. Instead of having some uh, you know, four-step memorized outline on how it is that you tell people about Jesus, what if due to the shifts in our culture, it makes way more sense and it's going to be far more helpful for your neighbor if you can actually enter into their conversation from where they're at. And so I'll just quickly give you the six perspectives. One is he talks about the doctrine of justification, of being declared right. He says that's not the whole gospel, but it's essential to the gospel. That what happens when you put your faith in Jesus is that you are justified, that you are made right with God. And he says, as you're sitting and listening with someone who is who's telling you their life story and who's navigating what, what, what's going on in their life, if, you, if you're beginning to sense the fact that acceptance 
is, is a big part of their story. Or if you realize that acceptance is a big part of your story, then maybe the doctrine of justification, the on-ramp into the gospel, this, this conversation about justification, a recognition that what Jesus offers is actually an end to all of our working. That we actually, we don't have to work for it anymore. We can be accepted because of what Christ did for us. That we're justified. Maybe you're sitting with someone, or maybe you're sitting with yourself. And you begin to realize that as they're talking, or as you're talking, belonging, being part of something, actually being, being loved, being in community. Like this is, this is an ongoing challenge in the journey of their life or in the journey of yours. And Jonathan Dodson says, adoption. Adoption is a core piece to understanding the gospel. That in, when we put our faith in Christ, we are brought in as children and we now have a perfect heavenly father and a loving older brother and more brothers and sisters than we could have ever wanted. Maybe someone's story reveals that this idea of just never feeling forgiven, feeling like there's a stain that they cannot wash out. This has shown up in plays and movies and books over decades and decades and decades someone who just doesn't think that they can ever be really forgiven. Well, the doctrine of redemption says that Jesus buys you back. He pays the entire price. And as he redeems you, he brings you to God, completely forgiven, completely washed, completely freed from your slavery. Fourth one he points to is if someone's story has this idea of a punishment, I deserve it or I've always gotten the raw end of the deal. Punishment is always part of the story. Well, the doctrine of reconciliation, that you're at peace with God, that Jesus wins peace, that the war is over, that there's no more consequences. Jesus took them all upon himself. Fifth, someone who's struggling with their identity, someone who's trying to figure out who they are. Well, this idea of a new creation is essential to the gospel, that in Christ, all things are new, that you are a new creation. It tells you that you can be the you that God wanted you to be. You, you, can, be, you can have life to the full, that you really can change, that you really can grow, because what God's doing in you is, is actually creating something new, a heart that went from dead to alive, a new creation. And then sixth, the, the issue of intimacy, of just being loved. And Jonathan Dodson points to the doctrine of union, where Paul or various biblical writers use the phrase in Christ or with Christ, that this union that happens when our faith is put into Jesus is this eternal love in a Romans 8 kind of way, a love that cannot you can't be separated from it that the God of heaven loves you more than you could have ever dreamed. You see, these all six of these, they're all pointing to the same gospel, but they're all different on-ramps. 
They're all ways that if you actually love your neighbor, if you love the people in your life, if you want those around you to know the hope that you have in Christ, it's worth your time to understand this gospel news in a richer way so that as you speak and as you share about the hope that lies in you, you actually have, in a sense, a subjective way to get there. What do you want? What are you seeking? What do you desire? How many of your friends can you answer that question for? Jesus asked it. What if we were willing to get to know the people in our lives well enough to know their hopes and dreams, their wants and their desires, and then we loved them? We didn't try to do this to to conquer. We didn't try to do this to convert them. We do this because we care enough to actually hear their story. And if the opportunity opens up, if the, if the opportunity is there for you to share your desire, your wants, your, what, what you long for, this personal encounter that you've had with the God of heaven that has changed your orientation, that has changed your desires, then you come at it from, the, from, from a perspective that, that makes sense to them, where there's, there's traction, where there's, there's a, a recognition of like, I, I can relate to that. I know what it's like to feel that. I know what it's like to feel like I've got a stain that I can't wash out. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the news that we long for every person to hear. What do you want? That might be a better starting point for your neighbor. Let's pray. God, as we think about the future of our church and we think about our own relationships, God, would you give us eyes to see people, to love them, to actually spend time listening and asking questions and hearing their stories. God, there's, there's so many amazing people. There's so many amazing stories. Some of the people around us are hurting Some of the people around us feel guilty. Some of the people around us feel like failures. Some of the people around us want to be their their whole selves. They want want to live life to, to the fullest, but it doesn't seem to be working out. Some people are on the treadmill trying to earn something. God, we thank you that the good news of the gospel invites a a, a way in which we can see you from all of those perspectives, where you invite our hearts to to turn from from the, the, the false hopes, the false promises, and actually orient us to how it is that you speak into those desires, into those wants, into what we are seeking. God, I thank you that you you love people. I think that Jesus cared enough to, to turn around and to ask, ask these followers that, that super personal question. God, we thank you that Jesus cares about us. That he doesn't turn a blind eye, that he doesn't quit on us, that he, he loves us and loves us deeply. God, I pray that you would allow that love to sink deep into our hearts, that we would experience the truths of these gospel, uh, these gospel truths, and that you would give us creative ways in which we can share that hope with anyone who asks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.